Good afternoon. Um, I hope you were all able to join us this morning for the first panel of our symposium. Um, if not, we will be posting a video of the, of the panel on our website soon, so keep watching this space. Um, we're very pleased this afternoon to have a panel focused on the spectacle of destruction, which I think is one of the more intriguing themes of the exhibition, um, to discuss its meanings and implications and our fascination with the subject. Um, Today we are very honored to have with us as our moderator, Robert Rosen, who is an educator, critic, preservationist, and Dean Emeritus of the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. He has published widely in the field of media preservation and is the founding director of the UCLA Film and Television Archive. In fact, as far as I can tell, he's pretty much the founding director or board member of any organization that has to do with preservation of film, as you'll see. He's the founding director of the National Center for Film and Video Preservation at the American Film Institute. He's the founding board member of the National Film Preservation Board of the Library of Congress. With Martin Scorsese, he was the organizer of the Film Foundation, for which he serves as the founding chair of its Archivist Council. There are more, but that was just a few highlights. Among his many awards, he has received the John Huston Award for Artist Rights from the Directors Guild of America. And also for 10 years, he was the film critic for KCRW National Public Radio. So we're very pleased to have him here today as our moderator. Next to him, we have, everybody switched around, Kevin Rosario, who is an associate professor of American Studies at Smith College. He has a PhD in American History from Yale University. And although trained as an historian, he has delved into many fields, including literary criticism, media studies, art history, philosophy, economics, corporate studies, environmental history, gender studies, politics, and cultural theory. So he's quite the Renaissance scholar over there. Um, he's the author of The Culture of Calamity, Disaster and the Making of Modern America, which won the 2008 Lois P. Rudnick Best Book Prize. He's currently writing a book on the underground as a site of artistic innovation and political dissent in the United States from the 19th century to our global digital capitalist age. So we're very pleased to have him as well. To his left, we have artist Ori Gerst, who we're very pleased to have in our exhibition with a work that is actually in the Hirshhorn collection. He's born in Tel Aviv, but is currently living and working in London. He has an MA in photography from the Royal College of Art in London, and he's currently a professor at the University of Creative Arts in Kent. He has many solo exhibitions. They include exhibitions recently at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, the Imperial War Museum in London. Uh, he was one of the earlier black box series for the Hirshhorn, which we're very pleased to have him back in 2008, and also at the Tate Britain in London. Group exhibitions include at the National Gallery in London, the Guggenheim, the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, and the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. His works are included in many collections globally, including the Hirshhorns and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, the Guggenheim, and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. So we're very pleased to have him join us today. And finally, on the far left, we have Joe Masco, who's a professor of anthropology at the University of Chicago, where he writes and teaches courses on science and technology, US national security culture, political ecology, mass media, and critical theory. He's the author of The Nuclear Borderlands, The Manhattan Project in Post-Cold War New Mexico, which won the 2008 Rachel Carson Prize from the Society for Social Studies of Science. 
He also has a forthcoming book called The Theater of Operations, National Security Effect from the Cold War to the War on Terror. And he's currently posted at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where he's researching a book on environmental crises. We're very pleased to have them all with us today to talk about this complex subject from various perspectives. So thank you for being here. I'll turn it over to Robert Rosen. Delighted to be here at this, I think, extraordinarily important, provocative, and distressingly relevant uh, exhibition. I wasn't sure we would get here, given the events in Washington recently, but seeing the display of auto self-destructive uh, politics uh, played through as performance art, uh, I felt that this was a both a ironic and even poignant preview of today's of today's program. Uh, I have two roles here. One is as a moderator, and I, again, I thank the organizers for having such smart and talented people, which will make it very easy for me. So I want to pose a few questions out there on your behalf. And the other is, you know, to bring in a film dimension as well. Um, actually, a movie dimension as well, because film is already very much part of the exhibition. Uh, the questions I want to pose on your behalf, because just about anybody coming to something as provocative and broad as a, an exhibition, a multifaceted exhibition dealing with uh, destruction and images of destruction and the social dimensions of destruction, is that there are a number of questions that undoubtedly come to mind. So on your behalf, let me lay out five of them and then I'll go to the people who actually know answers uh, and we'll, we'll talk about it. The one is, what's selected to be destroyed? Out of all of those things in the world, why is it that we come back again and again to things like cars? Uh, I know. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard suggested maybe that's because of the irony of killing people with your possessions. Uh, and that this make a certain kind of statement, but there are many others made by many other people and artists and what have you over time. Or why is New York long before 9-11, so often the object of destruction. Are there reasons for that that we might talk about? So one question is, what's selected out for destruction and why? Uh, we also, complementing that is the question is, by what agency? Meteors? Asteroids, monsters, 50-foot women. Uh, the uh, what you know? The follies of science, what have you? What are some of the agencies for that destruction? Another issue is what in the society gives rise to these images? We had a really great presentation that suggested that after World War II, there was World War II and the Holocaust and nuclear bomb that seemed to put destruction on the agenda. But what about all those disaster movies in the 1970s? 
astounding number of them. Could that have something to do with the disasters of the 1970s? And what about the fact that right now there is this resurgence of destruction, astounding array of destruction that's taking place, often leading to apocalyptic visions of the end of all the world. What is it about the contemporary world that puts apocalypse and that kind of massive destruction on the table? So the second question is about the society. A third question clearly has to do with the aesthetic, the look, the sound of destruction and whether or not each art form and there are so many represented in this exhibition, has its own aesthetic, or there are certain kinds of aesthetic elements that seem to recur and transcend and come to all of them. Another issue, one of the most difficult and perverse, are the pleasures associated. The pleasures for the artist, the pleasures for the spectator. Ah, uh, I, I ask, here, if you can, this is entirely by chance. When yesterday in, in the living room, at the other end was a seven-year-old drawing, and we said, what is, he, what is it, David, what are you drawing? And he said, the destruction of New York. Ah, <laughs> uh, that is a, a, a large alien, and it's atomic destruction. You can tell David he's been shown at the Hirshhorn now. Uh, but the question of, the pleasure that kids get and knocking things over. But the pleasure we get in, well, and I hope we're going to talk a little bit about the piano event yesterday. They, you know, and, and the responses to that and the complexity of the responses to that, which is an odd mix of being very upset and very pleased. Uh, and how that, how that, how that, come, how that comes together. So, Oh, and one final question. One of the assumptions, and a number of the speakers this morning alluded to that, is that the art of depicting and conveying destruction has a rebellious dimension to it, has a socially critical dimension. Does it? Uh, are there possibilities that it also has a deadening dimension? A, you know, something that, that in essence takes the edge off sensibilities or both and under what circumstances? So those are the questions I like to put out there. The one prerogative I want to do as a movie guy up front is to take a look at a clip. And then we'll talk about the clip a little bit and then enter into the discussion that people on this stage will lead. And the clip is and, uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, Zabriskie Point. How many people have seen it? A few. Oh, more, more than I expected. Uh, the movie made in 1970, Antonioni is someone who, for whom an action sequence might be a intense stare, possibly with a blink, who nonetheless chose to end Zabriskie Point with a rather astounding uh, display of destruction. Keep in mind, this is before the digital. This is not digital effect. This is destruction. So let's take a look at the clip. 
talk about the clip just a few minutes and then open it up. We don't have to move, do we? Or do we? Okay, great. <laughs> we'll be in the midst of the destruction. Okay. <laughs> Pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> why don't we talk a little bit, just to sort of warm up a little bit about the clip, if you have anything you'd like to say about it, because it, a lot of the complex issues dealing with the spectacle of the destruction comes up in here. And anyone want to get going? Sure, sure. Um, so uh, to me, this is uh, kind of uh, an interesting reply to the last scenes from Dr. Strangelove, where we have a serial series of blasts going off and the tune, you know, we'll meet again. And it raises this question for me about the uh, pull towards the destruction, the aesthetics of destruction, and also this uh, issue of if you can slow it down, it becomes something really different, something you can get lost inside and enjoy as, uh, as a different kind of spectacle than if it is played out in real time. The other component of this for me is that it's a desert scene involving uh, repeating explosions that ends with a kind of supernova sun, which is also, uh, given the, uh, the work that I do on, on nuclear history, also something that could be playing on uh, the destructiveness of the American desert and the idea that in its perfect form it has no human beings in it. And uh, that there's also a Nevada test site not far from where this was filmed, but of course for uh, you know, more than 40 odd years was the place in which gigantic detonations took off that were also extraordinary photographic spectacles uh, that we could talk about as well. The, the problem of actually um, photographing and visualizing nuclear tests was one of the major challenges to the U.S. nuclear program. And so there was a, um, in addition to building the bomb, there was a, a huge kind of photographic uh, experimental regime around it that produced perhaps some of the techniques actually that we're seeing in, in this clip about ultra slow motion and uh, the, the pleasures of getting inside a form of violence to such a degree that it becomes uh, an aesthetic universe of its own that one can get lost in. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the, the cinematic effects of this is um, also plays out in, in, in the repetition and the idea that you need to keep seeing it over and over again, that uh, it's, uh, there's something incredibly uh, seductive in, uh, in the force of that that also um, gets in the way of the actual nature of the violence that you're seeing. So I could say more, but perhaps... You know. <laughs> Yeah, I was struck by your response on cool <laughs> when we see this. And I suspect that's the way that many of us feel looking at this scene. That it's, it's aesthetically striking, uh, the, the music amplifies the aesthetic power of this. Oh, is, is my, is, okay, oops. <laughs> Do I have to wear my double-breasted? Is that better? Yeah. Okay. 
so yes, yeah, so I, I was struck by um, Bob's response to this as being uh, cool in some ways, and that, that there's a there's, there's almost a preconditioned response at this moment in history uh, to a scene like this. And I was thinking a lot of it in terms of um, in terms of genre and about movies and the ways that it's not necessarily that there's a natural response to an image like this that that we re respond to as as being cool, but that we've been uh, conditioned or imprinted or educated by movies themselves over the last hundred years to respond to images like this as, as um, sources of entertainment. And where do we mm. see these images? We go into a movie house. How are we supposed to respond to an image like this? Well, we know that if we're in a movie house that we're supposed to feel some kind of uh, pleasure. Um, and, it, and it seems to me that, uh, that, that just a, um, one, one example of this, There's, there was a movie came out about what, 10 years ago called uh, Left Behind. Did anybody see that movie? It was part of the uh, it was sort of Christian evangelical movie. Yeah, it was on the it was on the circuit. Um, Kurt Cameron, I think, was was involved in it, and and the the, the movie was um, a version of the very popular 60 million sold copies of Left Behind, uh, which is all about the, the evangelical rapture. And it's supposedly these books and this movie is about doctrine. Uh, that the, we the audiences were supposed to go to books and uh, movies like that in order to learn something about the Bible or to be instructed um, uh, in, in, in religion in some ways. Um, and I was actually one of the few people who, who watched the making of that movie. Um, and the thing that struck me about the making of that movie is that over and over again, they spent all of the time thinking about the explosions. And whenever somebody tried to have a conversation about doctrine or meaning or anything like that, nobody cared. Um, and what, but what really mattered, they put something like 90% of their budget into the explosions. Um, and, and the quote that I remember from that is, it's not a movie until it's got an explosion in it. And so somehow, um, even people who uh, supposedly, you know, this is a, a, an evangelical group that defines itself in some ways against Hollywood mainstream culture, even they have been produced, I think, by a hundred years of cultural imprinting to, to think about movies as spaces where uh, we, we respond to images of destruction as, as sources of, uh, we've been taught that it should be uh, a source of pleasure in some ways. And of course, it's, um, it's enhanced by the, the, um, the slow motion, uh, by the music, um, Pink Floyd, you throw that in there, and so it gives everybody a good vibe. Um, so I think that that's part of what's going on here, too. And there is the extraordinary spectacle that movies are delivering, and um, those images are coming way out of the ordinary. So all of a sudden, we—it's—it's it's not a, a, a veristic act, but we are invited into space that is unavailable to us. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of—I think that uh, this association to the nuclear explosion is uh, is very interesting, in particular in the context of the desert. And um, one of the things that um, I kind of. Um, I keep thinking about the nuclear explosion as a, obviously the ultimate disaster, the apocalypse, but also the ultimate moment of creation yeah. about the Big Bang. Yeah. And um, I think that it's it's important when we're talking about destruction because there is, we can talk about a certain satisfaction that is coming with the act of a, maybe the cathartic act of destroying something, but there is something fundamental that within the act of destruction there is also the moment of creation and they intertwine with each other. And um, I think that this is one of the um, kind of um, the, the most beautiful dialectics that are, you know, part of our um, existence on on this planet. And um, and for me, the only 
the greatest satisfaction that comes with destruction is a certain clarity that is emerging, uh, emerging out of it. Um, uh, George Bataille is talking about this in, uh, in his book The Cursed Share. He constantly talks about production that leads to excess and then there must be consumption. Yeah. And how yep. those two forces are really complementary of each other. And um, every one of the two worlds will war emerge as a result of excess, excess, excess with no um, consumption. And it's reached a point. Oh. <laughs> and uh, it's probably it's okay. my son. Wait. My son probably phoning to tell me about the football, the soccer result. Uh, <laughs> mine comes on in a few minutes. You'll see. Um, <laughs> and um, and really, when there is no consumption, right. there is an accumulation of energy. As Bataille kind of look at it, accumulation of energy that is ending up in a disastrous, apocalyptic explosion. Yeah. Hence, First World War, which I think it's a it's an interesting moment to talk about because we are just coming now to 100 years since 1914. Which is Clearly this has evoked thoughts. I think there are probably many other thoughts out here. A few more that I'd want to add in. One of them is that have to do with in part the function of destructive spectacle. The one is this is a subjective from the point of view of the girl. She clearly is pissed with the world. Uh, she is imagining these explosions taking place. And one of the pleasures, one, and, and to be explored in some way of uh, destructive spectacle is what I call aggression with impunity. <laughs> Either on the part of the artist or on the part of the spectator. There's a pleasure that's being taken in that destruction and because it is a spectacle. It's, a, it's only a movie. Uh, and that combination of being able to empathetically participate in, in the massive destruction go home and have dinner afterward. Uh, that combination of, of aggression with impunity is one of the things. A second thing is the social commentary. Clearly, there is a notion here of consumerism as being both something that you want to blow up and you know, massive consumerism as something to opposition. In the opposition, or it may itself be the cause of violence. But the notion of the TV going up and the other objects of the house floating out there, it makes a social statement. This is one that is a rebellious and critical social statement. The third part, which you people have done better than I could, is the fact that it's also beautiful. The notion that this destruction that we're seeing is giving you aesthetic pleasure. This, you know, the combination of movement and color and, and sound converging with one another actually is an extraordinarily pleasurable experience. All the more troubling because it's also this destruction that's going on, and, you know. And the fourth thing, and I'm sure this passed through your mind, given that this movie was made before the digital, and we'll talk a little bit later, maybe, about what the digital has done to images of uh, images of destruction, and that is, dare I say, 
auto-destruction. We're aware of the fact that that is not a digital image, that's a house. Well, actually it isn't quite. They shot the movie in a house and then built a model of the house, a full-size model of the house separately and blew up the model. They weren't going to blow up the site. And, you know, and it's a, you know, uh, and you're aware of the fact that and movies do this, spend a lot of money destroying themselves. <laughs> and, and, and you take a certain pleasure in that. Um, now, that again becomes significantly vitiated once you get into the digital. But once you know that that's, that's a real thing. So all of these elements we've talked about are operating. Which is the dominant one? Well, if you ask Antonioni, and I did, you get ambiguous answers. It's a little of this, it's a little of that. It's, you know, a little pasta, a little this, a little, you know, whatever. Uh, and, 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 and that's his way of thinking. But all of them are operative and they begin to open a window onto the multiple dimensions of uh, the images and spectacle of, of, of destruction. Uh, I hope this was worth starting it this way. And when we get back into some of the other issues we talked about. Could yeah. I, just, just one quick thing. So the idea of a, of a domestic space being blown up in a long extended sequence in which the commodities in the house are part of uh, the destruction and uh, the point of the aestheticization of the violence is something that the national security state actually pioneered. And if you uh, go online and look up uh, two films, one would be called Operation Q from 1955, and another would be called uh, The House in the Middle, you'd have an, an, a version of the end of, of this movie except made by the nuclear state and directed at the American public to communicate what, uh, what nuclear war would look like, to mobilize households for hygiene purposes, to take care of their houses so fires wouldn't erupt. And uh, there was a whole kind of effort to both create a normalized American middle-class, white, suburban, everyday that was being blown up in perpetuity. And that was a source of nation building uh, in the early Cold War. And it was part of a very large scale uh, effort that we call civil defense, which was an emotional management project to get people to think about the bomb in a particular way, to embrace certain images of violence as ways of building community and building nation. So the end of the nation became the way in which you established it. And that was through the rehearsal of certain images of the end, but also very large scale civil defense exercises that basically invited everybody to play out in the middle of the day the end of the country. And so I can't see a, a film like this and not see Antonioni looking at America with a little bit of like, you know, what? <laughs> and, yeah. and coming back a decade or two later and uh, returning these images to the world and to the American public, but, uh, but with a different, a different political agenda around them. So. Let me ask you so that something that segues out of this, and, and it's relevant in the contemporary setting, and that is each art form, whether it's photography or painting or performance art or what have you, is trying, and in this case the movies, is trying to create a sense of verisimilitude. It's true. This is real. Real, you know. In a contemporary setting, 
when in the digital technologies cows can fly, you can put somebody's head on somebody else's body, and where the photographed image that for a hundred and some odd years was a, an evidence of reality, we all know from our home computers you can do anything you want with it. Talk a little bit about, you know, the within the various art forms, this quest to be convincing and real, and how that has been, if it has been, undermined in a digital age. You can talk about my piece of the exhibition, which uh, once again well, talk involved, about it. Talk about it. Involved I know. an explosion, I... <laughs> and um, I think one thing that is crucial to me in the process of making work is the authenticity of the moment. And um, despite the fact that um, the flower arranged carefully in a film studio and we put all the pure techniques and we had to freeze the flowers with liquid nitrogen and everything is so carefully constructed, the actual moment that the camera is recording is an authentic moment that I, couldn't, I could never anticipate the outcome. And the camera is becoming or is taking its most natural role as a, as a, a recording device of an event. So it become the, the film that I get is a documentation of something that happened, an authentic moment that happened, that, um, that come as a surprise to the entire crew. I actually often worked on those films with people that are um, uh, involved in commercial and uh, we tend to, add, to have some um, moment, uh, tension moment because working on commercial people like to know what the outcome will be in advance. There is no space for chance and in the work that I produce it's all about those um, unanticipated opportunities that may emerge and then to recognize them and start to exploit them. Um, and again, when you work in the digital world, I'm talking post-production digital, you become very much in control. I kind of feel that often it can bring, um, um, it can make those moments very contrived and lose something mm. that, um, um, that um, those, the, uh, the chance, the accident. Um, at the same token, the, the, the means of production for those films is digital. So I use digital camera, digital yeah. devices, um, and I work with uh, high-speed cameras that are shooting directly into a hard drive. But the reason for that is, um, because the work, the work that I make is constantly in conversation with art history, and the, the outcome is very close to, um, in this instance, to um, the uh, still life painting from 17th century. Although the work itself is anything but a still life, because I'm recording an event that's happening in an enormous speed, and it's all about movement rather than still life. But it, it's crucial for me that the means of production will be as removed as possible from painting. Sure. So if painting is a very visceral and physical um, process where every brushstroke is left on the canvas, it's important for me that um, the work that I make now um, will be um, as close as possible to pure abstraction, which is uh, even analog film cannot produce because still there is the celluloid and the, and the silver on top of it. Um, so, the, so on the one end, the digital is kind of giving actually, as an, 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 a mean of production, access to um, 
to um, capture the world in ways that maybe were unavailable in uh, yeah, before, but, but in terms of post-production, I'm very much aware that um, um, it can, it can um, um, in my instance, um, take away from the, from, from the role of the camera and the relationship of the camera with some sort of uh, the notion of an authentic truth. Well, the question, you know, the more recent, one of the more recent Superman. Now, in the past, if Superman was involved in a battle with someone and a building was falling over, he would obviously, given all of the deaths and what have you that would come, would go and stop the building. But most recently, Superman just kind of ignored it. Uh, you know, he uh, was fighting a bad guy, but fundamentally, the total destruction and loss of life around him was one of total indifference, almost as if he knew this is a digital effect. <laughs> and that everyone in the audience knows that's a digital effect. And one of the questions I guess I'm posing is in terms of the spectacle of this, you know, and you spoke very well to it, the spectacle of destruction, whether it's tougher now to do a spectacle of destruction given the fundamental um, skepticism and knowledge of, of people about what's really going on. That piano we knew is a real piano. That's one of the reasons it's so unhinging. We'll come back to it. But most, you know, but in a, in a, in a, in a, in a contemporary world, it might be tougher, much tougher and different to convey that sense of destruction uh, than, it, than it, that it might have been in a pre-digital age. And that's just... But this doubt is true to anything. Whatever we see on the news, we never, I mean, any, you know, it's, it's poised question to our entire existence in the world, not just destruction. How we define, or how, what is the notion of reality, what is the, the authentic, where the authentic moment is, um, is there an objective? Yeah. Yeah. But I think the one thing that seems to remain constant through this is this notion of the authentic, the violent or the destructive as the moment of, of authenticity. So that the verisimilitude seems to be secondary in some senses to the fact that we all want to get access to something authentic. Um, and the, what, what is authentic? The authentic is when something is blowing up. That's when you're peering behind the, the superficial surface of life and you're getting behind it to what really matters. And it kind of reminded me, you, you were talking about Bataille, and Bataille was constantly going going on about how you know you're in the presence of the things that matter when destruction is happening. Mm. You know, that's, that's what really matters. Love is kind of you know, it's just a sentimental hoo-ha. Nobody really cares about love and stuff. But if you want to know something about how the world works you get to the, the, the destructive core of it. And, and it strikes me about um, your work, for example, up, upstairs, is it upstairs or downstairs? Where are we now? We're in the basement. Okay, upstairs. Is that um, it, the, it, it can be digitally manipulated but in some sense is we suspend our anxiety around that kind of lack of verisimilitude because we feel that we're getting close to something that's authentic. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the authentic is that we've, we've learned something about the destructive process at the center of life. Because you could, it, and also, I suppose, presumably, you could have filmed, um, filmed for about 20 minutes without a destructive moment in that image. Um, that would be verisimilitude, perhaps, but, but we don't care. <laughs> that's not the authentic that we really care about. We want the authentic when something bang. 
so some kind of crisis, some kind of um, destruction is happening, and, and it works. And that's the I, I don't know why it works. Yeah. And I, I can actually sit and watch 20 minutes of nothing better than most people. But but I also find myself responding to your um, to your piece very viscerally. It does feel as if the something real is happening here. Yeah, I would just say something quickly about like the the Hollywood version of this, which is that for about forty years the kind of you know, destruction of American cities on film for pleasure always was connected to a certain kind of moralizing gesture, either an effort to rebuild the nation, to think about the perils of Cold War confrontation. There was a kind of uh, regeneration through violence logic that by, uh, by considering violence, one was supposed to be altered by that experience and there was an opportunity for some kind of collectivity to come out of this. With the new computer-generated graphics of the 90s and on, it seems to me that what's important now is the resolution. It's like, can you see destruction with a higher degree of clarity? And uh, we don't actually have movies that are offering you to contemplate the end of the world as a serious thing to avoid. You actually, you know, you want to see it and you want to see it in higher and higher degrees of detail because that's the promise of the technology. So the, the summer of blockbuster is a space uh, for a certain kind of spectacle where you can now suspend a great deal of the the, the kind of uh, political frame for 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 what you're seeing and uh, and just enjoy for you know the clarity of its picture so to speak. Come back to the piano. That was unsettling. One reason being, it was uncontestably a real piano <laughs> with real physical attributes and keys and. And, and strings, you know, and wood, and what have you. With an eye toward segueing into the question of you know, the, the, the verisimilitude, and, and why don't we talk a little bit about your responses to, to that event last night. Was everyone there, or many people were there? This was a destruction by the man down here with an ax. Uh, of a grand piano. <laughs> And uh, I had a very strong response to that, and I was wondering what you guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that struck me about it watching last night was that it felt different from watching a guitar being destroyed. I, mean, I, I as somebody who plays a guitar rather than a piano, I, there's there's a guitars seem more disposable in some ways, whereas a piano signifies classical culture, the continuities, the great arts, and so forth. Um, and so I think that the, the choice of instrument is really important here. Um, uh, the choice of axe is probably less important, but, uh, but, that, but there, there, was a, there was a sense in which um, that there was an object that stood in for culture and civilization, and that that. That's and what, what was your response like. when you watched this happening? It, it, you know, frankly, for me, it was somewhat hyper-real, which is to say that I've seen videos of you destroying pianos, and then I was there watching you destroy a piano, surrounded by videos of you destroying a piano. And, and, and so, so it was, I, I'm not sure that as, as a sort of a, as a postmodern citizen that I had access to an unmediated response. I had already lived through it in, in some ways. And, and so I think that might have... We're going to come back to the notion of repetition. <laughs> but I might and its impact on, on yeah. response to yeah re so less anxious yeah, than I might have felt if yeah. I'd seen it for the first time without. Mm -hmm. 
I find it simultaneously um, disturbing and attractive, and I think that uh, the sound that came out of the, pi the piano that animated it and gave it a kind of some sort of life of an organism that is struggling was a, it was a very powerful aspect. It was disturbing immediately. I couldn't throw you know association about what is the difference between destroying a piano and burning a book or burning books. And I also kind of this even further association. This comes back to your discussion about the digital. If we see a decapitation of somebody in a film, um, and we still go to the film and we get some pleasure, if we see a real decapitation, um, then will we still get the pleasure? What is the point where we're looking at a moment, a moment that is um, is grotesque and brutal, and we say actually I can't look at it. It's not doesn't give me pleasure. Or if we see a real what we conceive as a real explosion, it's a, we see it on the news or we see it for real of somebody's house and we know that some people got killed there. Will we still get satisfaction from it? Um, yeah. Even if it's mediated through, uh, through the media. Uh, with the piano, I mean, it was a, a physical experience and I think that it kind of brought some of those thoughts to mind that we also raised, I think, early on in the conversation right. here. Um, so I think it's it come back to, it's not just if the possibilities of the digital, it's also our awareness and understanding or the knowledge that we perceive as, as, as viewers that informing us uh, our understanding of what we are looking at. Yeah. yeah, that was beautifully put. Um, the only thing I would add was uh, what struck me in, in addition to the, 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 the violence of it and the sound was the labor of it and just the physicality. And I thought, you know, this, this piano is such a complicated piece of machinery and it takes so much work to, to dismantle it in this way. And so it made me think about all the other things that we are uh, dismantling through cumulative labor. I mean, a lot of conversations about things like climate change right now where the destructive force of that is a total achievement of like human activity no single individual is doing it but collectively uh, you know planetary uh, violences are being unleashed in a way and that's a kind of labor a kind of collective labor that we're only now starting to have the right language and grammar and uh, means of, uh, of thinking about and uh, and so uh, for me the complexity of the of the piece of the performance piece was was thinking about the, the temporalities of destruction and the amount of labor that goes into it. And, uh, yeah, it was extraordinarily powerful. But I think also the artistry that goes into it struck me, too. And having, having seen also images of John Cage um, using all sorts of different types of objects to produce music, and what struck me, two things struck me about the performance last night. One is the way that the wind became part of the, uh, became an artist in some ways, that some, some the strings were hanging up and catching, um, catching the the breezes and creating these incredible sound effects, and it, it enhanced the, our sense of what um, it felt like a, a very intensely constructive and creative um, experience for me in that context as a, as a happening rather than as a strict um, piece of musical uh, performance. Yeah, yeah I, I I found a very 
I went through a series of responses. The initial response is, what the hell are you doing? There's the work of craftsmen, you know, of all kinds that put together this thing, and not only is it symbolic of culture, it is a manifestation of, you know, of culture. And what the hell are you doing? And I'm, since my friend here is much more political than I am, what kind of bourgeois pleasures are you providing, okay? And then, okay, then as it evolved, first of all, it was a great performance. The piano performed well because when you hit it, it was almost like a live entity that was crying out when you hit those strings. There was almost a human, you know, um, uh, at least a, an animalistic interaction that was going on. And the moment of truth for me and about the spectacle of destruction was when I said, and I bet other people thought that too, why don't you finish the job? You cut, you did a lot of damage to that piano, but it was still on its three legs, you know, and uh, why didn't you finish? And suddenly I became aware of how something that was reprehensible when turned into spectacle, makes you now complicit in the activity. I wanted you to finish the job, you know, what have you. And, and the, the political power of spectacle, you know, to transform you from repulsion, then to mediate that into complicity. I was with you. Uh, was very sobering. Uh, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, hey, you guys, if you got something you want to talk about, just talk about it. I got my, I got my, a lot of questions here. So, you know, but one that I know based on some writing had to do with this question of rebelliousness, consciousness, and whether it act, this was a moment where I was enhanced in consciousness, ultimately. You know, I was made aware of my complicity through spectacle. There is the argument that spectacle, particularly when repeated, when, re, you know, people talk about the 9-11 buildings going down and seeing it again and again and again and again and again and again, actually is deadening of response. <laughs> that the, you know, that the politics of uh, the spectacle of the, the, the of, the, of destruction is actually counterproductive ideologically rather than, you know, and I know yeah. both of, you know, you, both of, you know, have, <laughs> I'll have take dealt a, with this. I'll yeah. take a stab at just a, a, yeah. a piece of it. And, you know, so there's something in modernity in um, the acceleration of technology in which uh, one can consider that a, a kind of attack on the nervous system in and of itself. In the 19th century, when the railroads were being built, there were whole new illnesses uh, created just uh, by the encounter with the speed of uh, transportation itself. And the idea that uh, these new kinds, new modes of, of travel were actually rewiring the human body in ways that required that you, uh, as an individual, anesthetize yourself to uh, withstand the acceleration, the technological change, and that one way to read the story of the 20th century is that that's, that's the, the game played out over and over again in new medium, in, including in new
new new visualization uh, mediums. And so, so what what one way to would talk about that is that the anesthetization is part of a response to ever greater modes of stimulation, mm. and uh, that our bodies become overloaded and can't maintain kind of a, uh, a correct attitude towards all of the different kinds of technologies and forces that are around us. I think, you know, 24-hour news is kind of based on a version of this, right, where you, one has to circulate endlessly kind of very similar stories with escalating notions of shock for an audience to stay tuned in. Right? Otherwise, you get bored, right? And so... Uh, yeah, well, we've got the piano man here. You've got something? How does the post-traumatic syndrome, you know, the whole idea of someone soldiering and being alert within their idea of being destroyed and destroying, and, and that process continuing long enough, I don't think that that person becomes jaded because we have that post-traumatic syndrome and we have a high rate of suicide that comes out of yeah. that the impact of that. I don't know if people have heard that back there. Uh, but when someone speak to that, <laughs> repeat so, it and so, speak to um, it. The question of soldiers getting uh, traumatized by experiences and then what re uh, but reliving them though. So, yeah, well, I suppose there's several ways of linking these issues up, and as, as, as Joe was saying, one of the, the, the challenges of modernity, I guess, is to develop a sense of cool. And the historians of cool say that we, why, why are we so invested in being cool? It's because we, we kind of have to be, because we're bombarded with stimulus all the time. And that if you weren't able to, to manage all of this, this sort of hailing noises and sounds and images, that you would simply frag, fragment and fall apart. So there's a defense mechanism for mm. survival in this kind of a society. Um, the, the, but then you have situations like war and battle lines and bombings and so forth, which break through that cool those cool defenses, and it seems in some ways trauma is, is a sign of the, the breakdown of those kind of defensive stratagems, in, in a way. Um, what, what does that mean in terms of uh, the, the way that we cope with destruction or, or, or with... Um, But there is a, a real, I think, a real difference between personal experiences and experiences that are mediated through us through, yeah. um, through television. When we see somebody else being um, killed or somebody else being divorced, we hear that through the news, we can look at it as entertainment or gossip. And obviously, when we experience it ourselves, it's very different. And I think that one of the issues is how information is uh, transparent and what do we do with this information? How we, um, are we generate a level of empathy that is also um, um, motivating, motivating, motivating us to, to, to enact and to, and, and to make a change. And I think that one, one of the problems is that we are, um, it's, it's, it's the quantity of information that are being just throw at us that they're creating this sort, sort of um, um, immunization. And, um, um, 
I often feel that they actually works of art, um, unlike what come to us through um, through the media is um, or one of the roles of work of art is to be able to create those bridges to allow the viewer to engage with some um, um, with some personal film because one of the differences I think with between a work of art and the um, news uh, an item that is coming on the news that the work of art um, provide the viewer not with a didactic experience but with a much more democratic experience. The viewer is coming to the world. I feel with the moment I put a work on the wall, it's not mine anymore. And um, no matter what my intentions were, obviously they are somehow suggested in the piece, but they are left out of the equation and the viewer come and project himself into the work. And hopefully there are enough um, hooks and triggers and stimulation there to allow the viewer to develop a very personal experience. And I think through those personal experience um, um, we can come in uh, the, um, what is uh, transpassing to us can be much more um, intimate and, um, and then those issues about the immune system are maybe being pushed, uh, pushed sideways a bit. Out the bull, sorry. Right, you, you don't hear about bullfighters committing suicide. Uh, you know, that impact, the danger of the bull and being bored, and then the idea of also killing the bull as part of your survival in that process, you know. Yeah, I think that the relationship, I think that bullfighting, um, the relationship that the matador has with the bull is, is quite complex because there is, um, um, I think that. Um, there is um, the bullfighter adore the bull. The bull will, is the, the animal that um, a bullfighter will looking up to. Is um, and there is somehow um, um, almost there is an alter ego in some, to some extent, and there is a feminine masculine relationship, and there is it's an act of um, um, uh, it's a sacrificial act, and um, and also a painstaking act uh, when the bullfighting is killing the bull is as if it's something that may be close to the Aztec that would kill uh, will sacrifice the prisoners that he caught in the world as, there is, as if something in him is being is being killed, and it's also an act of um, a cathartic, cathartic act. I feel that uh, I'm not sure that if that it's uh, the bullfighting is a good analogy because it's um, because it's wrapped with so many cultural association and traditional meanings that um, the act itself it's not a pure act of violence of two people that are just going to face each other in a war and and you know and trying just to rip each other head and are unprepared for it. When it's come to bullfighting, there is a lot of um, um, kind of um, cultural foundations. Yeah, that, uh, go, go, we, yeah. Okay, could we wait till later when we can bring down a microphone so we can hear you? Uh, 
But maybe I could just add one one thing on this that that, that also is brings up the question of the repetition in images. So you, you asked the question about soldiers and post-traumatic stress, in which you know that circuit is the the experience of some kind of violence that one can't get out of after the violence has ended. It becomes internalized and is part of a repeating structure that reworks the psyche from the inside and um, you know can lead to suicide, as you were pointing out, but also can just structure a life through the repetition of some partial memory of an experience that uh, may or may not be recoverable. Um, but we have uh, versions of this that operate in a really different way, just through uh, the level of images. One was brought up in the fact that uh, when uh, you know the train, the, the plane struck the towers on, on September 11th, there was a, a pretty widespread uh, reaction that people had already seen that before, right? So how is it that something that was an unprecedented event could be experienced as something that was familiar and actually had a kind of hypnotic quality because people already had a relationship to it before the event happened. Partly that is something that maybe was um, produced out of the repeated attacks on New York in cinema for 40 some odd years from the ways in which the nuclear state always imagined New York as its primary target. So if you've uh, gone through any kind of uh, military training or learned any of the, the kind of uh, nuclear thinking developed along the long, the long Cold War, you saw New York destroyed over and over again in official documents. Um, but then there's a, a new version of this as well, which is those um, individuals that are flying the drones uh, on the other side of the world. They're in various parts of the US, so they're connected now to a highly technologically mediated system for f remote flying of machines you know, that are, are very far away from the individual. They're now having post-traumatic stress. So the act of flying and the act of killing, even when hyper-mediated by the most extreme distances and the most extreme kinds of technologies right now um, has the same effect of, of, of being literally on the battlefield and uh, uh, can produce uh, a similar kind of lifetime struggle, I think, with, um, with the act of killing, with the act of violence itself. So, it's, um, so those are three different ways in which a kind of traumatic injury is being produced, either through the, the physical experience of it or through the, the highly mediated uh, image uh, registers. The question, uh, we will get some microphone down here in, in, in a few minutes and, and continue this dialogue. You ought to be up here. Uh, the, uh, the, the issue of the extent to which art, particularly art that has spectacle of destruction, results in clicks of consciousness that, you know, that, that change attitude or maybe change behavior is a Really good question. I mean, as you wander through this astounding exhibit out here, how often are you truly moved by what you see? You may be, how, how often are you deeply troubled by what you see? You know, I, many years ago, this was a, a totally different world, but during the Vietnam events when there was a concern that people had now come to buy into napalming of children, we put out a press announcement that we were going to napalm a puppy on the steps of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the library. We had no intention of doing it. It's amazing the people who showed up. <laughs> 
right, the breast. Uh, that, 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 you know, that breakthrough to identity. And to what extent is the, is, are the, the images and the ubiquity of the images out there ultimately having an effect of getting you used to it, making it more, you know, accustomed to what's going on, you know, as, a, as opposed to provoking reflection. It's a, it's a tough issue. Uh, on the issue of, uh, yeah. I just wanted to talk, you started to talk about works of art, and I think that uh, an important issue to raise is aesthetic values. When we're making plastic art, um, that is, um, um, it's primarily experienced through um, some sort of um, visual, uh, visual exchange. And, um, and, um, the attention to details and beauty are uh, fundamental to it. And um, it's something that I think about it often in my work, how there is a collision between a moment that is extremely violent and at the same time um, this desire to um, deliver a moment that is incredibly beautiful to a point that the violence can be is, is forgotten and the viewer immerse himself or herself um, in in beauty and almost forget uh, or how beauty can uh, can uh, uh, create a um, some sort of a screen that yep. they, that transformed the viewer to a very different space and the, and the inconsolable tension that exists between what you're actually looking at, which can be a, a very grotesque and violent moment, to the, the genuine pleasure that you get, almost meditative pleasure, of looking at incredibly beautiful moment. Yesterday I was at the National Gallery and this, this, uh, this question and those issues are relevant to the Renaissance time and you look sometimes at the most gory events, but the execution, um, the, the technique, the application of paint are just sublime. So you look at some of the, um, you know, Titian or, or, or Berlin's painting, and it's, it's very interesting to see the subject that is depicted and the manner and the attention and the obsession in detail and, and the beauty of execution that as a viewer you come, when I stand in front of this painting, I come closer and closer and then um, you know this aura of them uh, the end of the artist is often removing me from the subject and then so there are those parallel existence of those um, um, dichotomies or, or um, collisions what haven't we talked about that you would like to talk about <laughs> <laughs> What haven't we talked about? You know, one thing that was um, struck me when I was researching the long history of representations of destruction, um, in, especially in American culture, was um, that the enthusiasm for images of destruction went way back. And with, yep. with this, the, the exhibit here starts in 1950, for obvious reasons, given this post-nuclear and so forth. Uh, but if you go back to the 1600s and look at Puritan sermons and so forth, um, from the very beginning, uh, American culture is bound up with images of disaster and destruction, and partly as a way just to get people into what were, I suppose, the 17th century version of movie houses, which was churches. You know, how do you get people into the churches? Well, partly you do it by forcing them to go, but partly also by the, 
the the topics that you that you talk about, um, and and over and over again, it was destruction was the topic that you talk about, and it lavishly rendered. It's not just that do this and you'll go to hell, but that this is what hell looks like, and the, um, and oh, you will be punished in this way. It's lovingly rendered versions of the punishments that people would get. And one of the things that struck me about reading reading about responses to that is that disaster became so embedded in American culture so early that the absence of disaster from people's lives was an occasion for some anxiety. So that there's the Archbishop of Usher back in the 17th century, or the 1700s I think it was. Um, one of the major anxieties that he had in his life is that he'd never suffered. He'd never been in a major disaster. He'd never had a major health problem. And, and his concern was, well, so, so what, what, was, what was the problem here? Well, partly it was theological that disasters you know, are the testing times. You know, God sends us disasters in order to, so that we can prove ourselves and so that we can deepen ourselves and so that we can um, so that we can act and we can be responsible, return us to the path of purity or, or whatever. Um, and, and if that's the case, if the culture puts so much emphasis on disaster as the testing ground, if you if, if, if you don't have disaster, then then there's there's a sense in which life becomes thinned out in some ways or weightless in some ways. And so this yeah. poor old archbishop was worrying about. So I, you know, I, I have to. I, I need a disaster. Sure. What's what's wrong with me? Why, why doesn't God like me anymore? Um, and and this was the language that was used through the 17th and 18th centuries. That the, the the loving breath of God and so forth comes in the form of disasters. So that when we're thinking about contemporary uh, cultural representations of disaster and their attractions, I think that it's also um, hidden within the kind of the, uh, uh, sort of. Like, that's not Christian. They thought. Well, I mean, this, these were I, I, well, they were congregationalists. I, I guess they count as Christians in sort of among, but there, there, there's lots of different types of Christianity, I suppose. Um, but they were certainly viewing that that, that sense of, and, and I, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking specifically about sort of American Protestantism. And Catholicism tends to play out in slightly different ways. Um, but what but what I am trying to get at is the sense that that are, are sort of embedded in our in our ways of thinking about disaster. Are, are these deep narratives that have been implanted there many years ago? So that even when we look at the, the language that we use, you know, acts of God and so forth, are inherited terms that, for even people who don't believe in God necessarily, will still call a disaster an act of God. Um, and, and, and I think that, that not only that, but it's that sense of disaster as, the, as a positive influence in people's lives is, is one of the things I wanted to add to this conversation. Um, so, so that it's, it's the thing that allows, allows us to improve, deepen, test ourselves. Um, and, and so forth. On a different plane, uh, does the term destruction porn <laughs> resonate at all? And whether whether or not voyeurism isn't one of the pleasures of the spectacle of destruction? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess we go to Joe for the porn questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you that in the in the constitution of. Uh, of kind of the, the U.S. nuclear project, which was for the American public in the world, a largely a visual project of distributing certain kind of images. It was also very much tied to censoring all other images. And uh, right from 1945 going forward, there was a very explicit conversation about how you would locate citizens along a fear-terror circuit. 
Uh, fear being constituted as a productive way of mobilizing a society at a time of kind of uh, uh, international risk and of maintaining the virtues of kind of wartime into a different kind of time, something that was eventually, you know, Cold War. But, uh, but terror was seen as something that would be immobilizing, that would uh, make the, the democratic uh, uh, society completely fall apart. And so image was key. The, the regulation and distribution of images was key to that. So there were certain images, say, of Hiroshima that focused on certain buildings, but nothing to do with the body destroyed by the bomb. Similarly, throughout the 20 years of above-ground testing, you have these iconic images, of, like up, what's upstairs from Edgerton's work, of being very far away from a nuclear uh, explosion, something that um, offers you an experience of the sublime, but also distance, protection, and a way of being uh, very far away from it. There's a whole other uh, visual project, which is about being very close to it, being very, very much inside uh, in terms of either uh, dealing with structures or um, people or animals, right? And so this notion of calibrating emotions, calibrating perceptions through um, a very disciplined effort to deploy certain images and keep all other images out of circulation is one of the stories of the 20th century around destruction. And I think we p we're picking up on, in the show, lots of different ways in which uh, artists are responding to not only the proliferation of, of uh, the images of the bomb, but also the absences and the way, and are filling in some of the, the gaps around uh, that project through various, uh, various kinds of experimentation. I want to ask something, actually a question to Carrie about the timing for the show in right now. It's a, um, I mean, I, I have my thoughts about it, but I just wanted to, I, obviously you don't have a mic, so I don't know if it's a... Yeah, Edward, I'd like to admit that we just put it together a couple of months after the, uh, you know, uh, shutdown. Right. <laughs> but of course it's been in production for a number of years, but um, uh, we were, I, I was noting the other day that the damage control, you know, uh, it, the, the, the letters are DC. And it does seem to have some resonance. I mean, we did choose to do the show here in Washington, uh, partly because we were in Washington uh, anyway. I mean, I think it's a show that could happen anywhere, but it does have particular resonance for not only, you know, the ineffectualness of the government, but more, more so the decisions that are made here in Washington, whether it be drone strikes or, or, or whatever the kind of complicitness of, of, of our government and others in, in things that have happened around the world, uh, beginning with the dropping of, of the atomic bomb on, on Hiroshima, uh, you know. Um, so, you know, in terms of, of the timing of it, I think it's more about uh, where the show's happening than right. the timing. I'm sure within a few more months, we'll see light again. The reason I'm asking because um, obviously there are um, immediate association with the apocalypse and um, those associations are kind of coming as the cycle and at the end of every uh, of a century, uh, end of millennium, we tend to have this. And I'm just thinking about 1914 and 2014. Yeah. The fact Actually, that... That's true. We, we were putting the show together uh, originally. Um, uh, it was postponed a little bit. 
I just yeah. came back from Vienna last week, and um, there was this great project there that started in the middle of the 19th century, where the Kaiser wanted to rebuild Vienna and to create this grand new city that will resonate to um, ancient Greece. And um, everything was bubbling there. They, they were they all the um, uh, demographically, it was clear, looking from outside, that um, the, the disaster is looming. But um, they were leaving the the the, the ruling classes were living in a completely different, um, with a completely different sense of reality and elevated art. So it's the, f the first ever museum was built there, not as a palace that was converted, but a real museum. And they finished building it. I just read about it. Vienna was complete dust and for 40 or 50 years, they finished building it. And then obviously a few years later in 1914, the whole thing fell apart and the world completely transformed. I have to say, walking in Washington through the mall and looking at all these Greek pillars and this kind of a grand um, a exhibition of, of power and wealth and walking into the National Gallery. And the time that we're in with this kind of notion there as well, there was an economic bubble. The money that the Kaiser managed, managed to raise was not real money and he kind of managed to materialize various properties and all sorts. Um, and I just saw that, you know, the timing of uh, damage control is as the strongest. What's interesting is when we first talked about the show, we talked about it briefly as a show that would just focus on the late 40s, 50s, through yeah. the 60s, maybe ending in the, in, in the 70s or so. Mm -hmm. And it was just going to be that period, about, more, more about the, the, you know, the nuclear period uh, and the fear of living under that, the, the destruction in art, uh, the destruction in art, um, uh, the destruction in art uh, symposium period actually in, in the mid 60s but as Russell and I talked about the exhibition we kept saying well wait a second you know then this happened and then this happened and now this is happening and there was something about feeling like we had if not come full circle, something on that order of, of, of fear, for example, of you know dirty bombs that was popping up at the time we first started talking about the show, uh, you know 9/11, uh, a lot of terrorist uh, strikes around the world, uh, that we we actually started to feel we can't stop the show, you know. Uh, there's a bit of a dip in the show if you notice, and, and it's probably a weakness in the exhibition. Actually, I will admit, uh, it, around the 1980s or 
or so, early 90s, it, it, it fades out a, a little bit with the exception of some Jack Goldstein uh, paintings and a, and a few other things. But then it comes back on in the 90s uh, uh, pretty strong and then picks up again, you know, in the 2000s uh, fairly radically. And um, uh, so we, we ultimately made the decision that just like the Hirshhorn's a circle, that we were coming full circle uh, in the exhibition. Uh, one of the things I found really in interesting, I, don't, I hope it's okay, can we go ahead and talk now, Bob? Are you okay with... Okay. The, um, um, uh, you, you were talking about the digital. And uh, there's some works near the end of the exhibition by Thomas Roof, which I find interesting in, in that sense, because they're nothing but JPEGs pulled off the internet and blown up to large uh, 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 proportions. And I'm not sure how to take those images. You know, from a distance, they're, they're destruct, it's destruction, it's, it, and it looks real, and, and they're very, you know, very much uh, a kind of photojournalistic uh, technique. As you walk closer to them, you start to see the pixelation in them, you see the tiling uh, in it, and, and when you get right up to it, almost like pointillism, it starts to completely disappear into just the technique of, of, of digitalization. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I find that, that discussion extremely interesting, and I do think, like in the Man of Steel movie, it's destruction for destruction's sake, whereas in the Antonio Tony movie, there's, which is a real explosion, there's something more going on there. Okay. So. I want to come back to another comment you made uh, earlier and open it up, and that is you talked about when you were younger, uh, we all were, uh, the, uh, and, and the, the, the notion of the atomic bomb and the dock and cover activities taking place in the school. One of the things that's easy to forget that this was a qualitative shift. It used to be that people who thought the world was coming to an end carried signs and you dismissed them as marginal and, you know, and kooks. Well, suddenly, and I like this phrase, it was used by Herman Kahn, the sort of right-wing thinker, thinking the unthinkable. He wrote a book on thermonuclear war in which he did the number, he played the numbers. And if the, if the bomb hit, how many people would be killed? How many people would survive? Would we win? Would, Dr. Strangelove, perhaps, was in part based on Herman Kahn, but the phrase, thinking the unthinkable, is very important, it seems to me, in the history of the spectacle of destruction. You now had to bring into your mind the real possibility that the world was going to end. Not just crazy people in the school. Well, the issue now, given all of the apocalyptic movies, images and what have you, is that are we again at a qualitative shift? At a point where we are thinking the unthinkable. It has now become credible again that the the, the, the waves will roll into New York, that, that global warming, that any number of things have entered into people's consciousness where it's now a kind of taken for granted among young people that there's a chance maybe a good chance, the world will come to an end. <laughs> uh, and, 
and what impact that has had on on, on imaging and, and and storytelling. Is are, is, are we at a, at that turning point again, or is that just a passing? Uh, I think some of the imagery seems to be changing. I, I, I'm very curious about this zombie apocalypse idea as well. And it suggests that there's some kind of concern about you know, global pandemics, um, biological disasters yeah. Yeah. rather than right. natural or technological disasters. And it's sort of raising new questions of representation as well. And how, how do you, you know, you know that you're in the presence of a, a disaster movie when something spectacular happens. Um, how do you represent um, a a pandemic. Um, well, zombies is a good way of doing it, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then you sort of, I, 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 uh, you know, so, but, but it, but it's, but it right. suggests that this is a wrestling with a new new type of threat, but still trying to figure out a way to, um, to I, introduce I, into the I culture. should pass the mic around, but I, is Kenneth here from yeah. the Bulletin? Yes. Hi. Um, I wondered maybe maybe you might take the mic for a second and 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 ask because. Um, uh, oh, you got one. Um, because. Um, uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists invented the Doomsday Clock, and 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 the representative is sitting right there. And the Doomsday Clock, I think, had been as far back as maybe what, 12 to midnight or something at one time. As far back as 17 minutes. 17 to minutes. Yeah. Now it's at five. Right. Five to midnight. So I I think there's something in what you're you're saying. Right. Well, in fact, well, well, in fact, the the, uh, the clock was created by an artist, a young artist, Martel Langsdorf, who died just last May. Uh, she was married to a physicist who'd worked in the Manhattan Project, and um, as she was at being asked to design the first cover of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, she played around with some ideas and uh, was part of the scientist movement at the University of Chicago, where people were debating uh, very heatedly and passionately about what they had done, what they had created. Um, the bomb which could destroy the world, uh, you know, there, were talk, there was talk at the time that it might even ignite the atmosphere uh, and the first test of Trinity and could really destroy the world. So she was struck by the urgency. So the clock, rather than a uranium symbol or, you know, any an atomic symbol, the clock seemed to her to capture the spirit of that time and the sense of urgency that the scientists had uh, that everyone should know as much as possible about this horrible, devastating technology. And it really did become, and has been since then, um, the single most dangerous technology in, on the earth. It, we can destroy ourselves. And really, I think uh, uh, Jonathan Shell and others, uh, Joe, have talked about this as a singular moment in human history, where it's not locusts or um, you know floods, that Noah's flood, or, or fire, it's our own fire. It's the fire that we've created. And so the technology, which, you know, is a kind of art in a way, it's a construction out of our own consciousness, out of our intelligence and brain, is coming back to kill us. Um, and so the doomsday clock, uh, although it, it, was a, it was kind of called the clock of doom, not by the scientists, but by media people who wanted <laughs> to give it a, a, a cute name, um, we've taken it on, the doomsday clock, and, and tried to, over these 65 years, to tell people how close we think, uh, the scientists think we are, to doing ourselves in. 
So it's still at five minutes to midnight. It was at two minutes to midnight in 1954 when the US and the Soviet Union detonated the, the first hydrogen bombs within six months of each other. A very difficult period in our history. Um, we seem to feel like we're a little bit more complacent now. But the threat of climate change has been added to the clock. And with that, we think, just as you've been saying today, um, that is certainly another way in which, through our own technological genius, uh, in this slapstick metaphor, which I <laughs> loved this morning, uh, we will, you know, hit ourselves in the head, literally, and and do ourselves in. In terms of spectacle, 1954, when it was two minutes to midnight, is also the year that Godzilla was made uh, in, in Tokyo. Uh, and they're making a new version, which is coming out this year in or 2014 in, in, in May, I think it is, based on the original. I think that Paul Varilio made an analogy between the, the bomb and the in God, and he, he kind of attributed if we, we human being created God, we created something that we're living under the fear of, we made something not to be used, and this, this monstrous force is hovering above our head, and really, um, um, somehow um, dictate or a shadow that is um, um, having an effect on our day-to-day um, -day activity. Other question, way in the back there. Just wait for the microphone. Uh, yeah, thank you for the discussion. It's very interesting. And uh, I just wanted to point out that a chronologist can be tricky anyhow. And obviously, you know, this has to be modern and contemporary. So it has to be delimited at some in some fashion. But uh, the early modern uh, art historian in, in me, while pacing the exhibition, kept thinking, you know, there's nothing new about this, essentially, you know, uh, to evoke something, that, a point that was made earlier on. Uh, you could talk about, I mean, the very notion of iconoclasm is, refers to a specific period in Byzantine art, right? You can talk about palimpsests in, in sort of, uh, uh, in, in uh, um, manuscripts that were written over and erased and written over. You can talk about executions that were very public, sort of part of everyday life as, as a performance piece, at least for the people that, and the state that organized it with impunity, as was talked about earlier on. So it seems to me that, you know, we, we, we have to talk about in a certain context, right, that, that, that incorporates a whole visual tradition uh, and a whole sort of ethical and political background that, that is not new that has nothing to do necessarily with the atomic age, right? And is not specific to it. So I don't know if you would care to speak about that and also about more broadly art and artists that evoke that sort of historical past in their work about destruction. Thank you. Cool. Anyone else out there? <laughs> Questions, comments? Yeah, right back there. Thank you also for this very interesting 
um, thoughts that you brought and also while listening to, there were many topics, very interesting uh, topics that were put up and um, I was thinking then again now to the, to the movie and thank you for showing us this beautiful uh, thing and I, I at some point just started to see this movie Antonioni showing us that destruction could be a part of a revelation of what is the real value of uh, what what is destructed, what we have uh, before our eyes. Because uh, you see first the house blowing up uh, from different views, going only closer and closer, and then it starts to be really like a dream. Uh, the house is of course something I think very valuable, it's a home, it's where you live, where you have all your uh, whatever, families and souvenirs and so on and so on. And then you start, uh, we, we started to see the, uh, some personal uh, elements blowing through the sky, the closest, then very futility things uh, destroying like the, uh, you see the, the closest thing and then and also the, the, the cornflakes and the chicken that was uh, uh, going through the air. And then a little bit later you see the books, you see the, uh, yeah. so, and it was like, uh, uh, it was like revelating what is the value of what uh, is in front of us and what is being destroyed. So just as a as sort of comment, is destruction not? Uh, it's when it's destruction. Uh, so you, and you you talked about authenticity. When when it's destruction, we we look for authenticity in what it, because when it's destructed, it is something real that it's happening. But it also reveals the value of it because when it's uh, destructed, first you see the inside a little bit in like the piano yesterday that we saw. Uh, you saw more of, uh, but not also. The, not only the inside of the aesthetical part, uh, I mean the aesthetic uh, inside, but the, 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 the hardness, the quality, the, you saw the, the things, the parts that made the music, other parts that were just making noise, you see, and the different materials. So it's really a revelation of what is inside and the value of it and also the loss of it, because when it's destructed, it's also lost forever. And so this combination of uh, revelation of value and losing of this value seems also to me a very important topic in this uh, discussion. Great. Good. Yeah, please. I guess uh, as I was uh, talking uh, about the scientist's realization that we really could destroy ourselves. I mean, we could destroy now with climate change, not only the human humans, but also um, uh, all of the habitat and the entire planet. And I wonder whether this isn't a really huge challenge to art, because in fact the loss is so complete that we have, there's no consciousness left if it were to pass. If humans became extinct, which is, is possible with climate change or with some other things that we've talked about technologically, it is a, it is a possibility. So is it possible for artists to really represent that kind of entire loss of 
consciousness of a species, and maybe several species. Um, and perhaps your, your question about, this all seems familiar, right? I mean, so, so, 1950 on, so big deal. Maybe it's just beyond our grasp, really, to understand what it would mean for uh, the annihilation of the entire human race. And maybe that's why it's so difficult for art and artists to really grapple on some level, um, despite the films and all sorts of things, but to, to actually grasp what that would mean. That's a question. That seems like a perfect. We have, oh, we more? Okay. That seems like a uh, perfect note to end on. Um, once again, I, <laughs> I can't grasp it myself. So, but I want to thank so much our panelists. I feel like we could go on for another two hours, actually, myself. Um, but I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for being here today on the panel. It was um, absolutely fascinating. And thanks to all of you for being here all day with us. Um, if you missed the morning panel, or if you had to come in late for this one, we will have all of the. Um, videos for the for the symposium on our website soon and also if we were talking about the piano destruction concert if you were not here last night and didn't get to see it the remnants of the destruction are on the in the first gallery on the second floor but we will also be posting the video of the performance on our website soon so keep checking thank you very much for coming and we hope to see you soon